Welcome to Accelerated, where we dig deep into practical and tactical advice from some of the best subject matter experts in the tech world. On this episode, I talk with my good friend, Gary Stewart, about tech entrepreneurship, civil liberties, and a whole lot more. This episode is brought to you by Accelerated Startup. Everything you need to know to make your startup dreams come true from idea to product to company. Grab it on Amazon, iBooks, or Audible today and be a better founder tomorrow. If you haven't yet, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. And here we go. So Gary Stewart is the CEO and co-founder of The Nest, the masterclass for founders. Before founding The Nest, Gary spent over eight years heading up Telefonica's Wire Accelerator across Spain and then in the UK. At Wira, he invested in 185 startups that raised $265 million and were valued at more than $1 billion. Gary is also an associate professor at IE Business School in Madrid. He started his career as a lawyer working in New York and Europe. He then launched his first startup in 2005, which he eventually sold to a publicly listed company. He graduated magna cum laude Phi Beta Kappa from Yale College and was the executive editor of the Yale Law Journal, at the Yale Law School, the number one law school in the world, for those that don't know. He is the governor of the University of East London and has been twice on the power list of the most influential black people in the UK. Gary is a very good friend. We've known each other for years, and here is our conversation. Gary, welcome to Accelerated. Thanks Thanks for having me. So let's dig deep and let's dive right in. You have a fascinating background. Uh, you are a very impressive person, one of my most impressive friends, I, I, I always like to say. Um, but I think it, it gives a lot of context um, for how you grew up. So like, let's start there. How did you grow up? And uh, tell us a little bit about uh, where you came from. Yeah, no. So I was born in Jamaica, kind of, uh, yeah, born in Jamaica. My parents, I guess, in the 19... 19- early 1980s decided, or 1980 decided, that I guess Jamaica was becoming a bit too socialist and communist or whatever, and they kind of thought it was going to be like Cuba. So they took us to New York, grew up in the Bronx, you know, um, immigrant family, kind of in the hood, as we would say. Uh, But eventually, you know, my parents just worked hard. And so they kind of kept progressing that kind of immigrant dream. And they always had this, like, idea that we would have to realize their ambitions for them, you know, and it's kind of, I think that kind of created a sense of obligation or, yeah, of meaning for me that like I couldn't really disappoint them. And it turned out to go relatively well. You know, I kind of went to a school called the Bronx High School of Science, but what was really interesting is that like, I didn't go to Bronx Science because my parents knew um, anything about what Bronx Science is or was. It's kind of like one of the top schools, I guess, high schools in the country. You have to take a test to get in. The only reason why I knew about it was because a teacher at a school that my parents were paying for private schools. You have to imagine like black family in the Bronx and they're like, we have a smart son. So we have to pay for him to go to a private school in the Bronx. Um, I'm not sure, you know, Um, but in any case, one of the teachers said, well, you know, you have a really smart son, but he's not really being pushed enough here. And he's trying to be a class clown. So then I went to the test of Bronx science, got in. I think that kind of changed my view because that was probably the first time I was surrounded by like, um, what I'm going to call like ambitious white people um, in the sense that it was like a lot of families from Manhattan. I don't think I had previously known families from Manhattan. You know, Manhattan was this kind of like far off 
romantic place that like everyone was like rich and white and blonde and had like really wonderful lives and maids and stuff. Um, and I was growing up in the Bronx and I had a very different reality, but um, because it was a meritocratic school, all I had to do was be a good student. And then eventually I ended up graduating kind of the president of the high school and I kind of won the New York City debate championship and stuff like that. And then I kind of think that when I got to Yale, there were moments where um, I didn't quite believe it and I didn't believe in myself the first semester. And I got like two Bs, which I thought was kind of, you know, normal. And then one of my professors, Paul Frimmer, so if he's listening out there, Paul Frimmer, who's now teaching at Clinton, said, you know, you're actually kind of smart. You got the highest grade in this like seminar, like a, a senior junior seminar for constitutional law. And he's like, how'd you do it? And I was like, oh, I don't know. And then I was like, so I guess this isn't that hard after all. So then I kind of like went on to get, I think only one B again for the rest of the four years at Yale. Um, and then when I got into Yale Law School, I kind of, at that point, really believed in myself that I could kind of actually do it. But of course, there were always like people like Professor Owen Fisk that said, you know, you're really smart or you kind of like made me his TA or whatever. And in kind of law school settings, Yale, there are only like about 200 students. So to be chosen as a TA, for, teaching assistant for one of the top professors kind of was really cool. And yeah, I just had people pushing me. And that was kind of like how I grew up, kind of, as my aunt said, always knowing that I was as good as any, better than many and inferior to none, even though the images of blackness that surrounded me, whether in kind of the immediate vicinity of my neighborhood or on television, weren't always the ones that I believed about myself. So you're yeah. talking about a lot of kind of a mix of nature and nurture, and this is like the ultimate argument, right? Um, you know, uh, certainly you had a great uh, upbringing. Your parents obviously were pushing you hard enough and had the bandwidth to do it. Uh, obviously, I'm sure they had a deep educational background because I think that's like the biggest factor in any study is that your level of education, you know, the biggest predictor is your parents, right? Level of education, which, uh, you know, if we, and, and I think we'll cover this, but this is also the reason for uh, some of the things that are trying to be corrected because you have these communities, minorities, especially in America, that haven't had those opportunities for generations. So then it's kind of this compounding effect where you have a much lower chance for uh, some of the minorities, especially Black Americans, to be able to go to college because they don't have that background. No, I, mean, I think. What are your thoughts on that? No, in my case, it was like you know my parents are pretty normal. Like my mother actually graduated from college at the same time as my sister, and my, my father didn't like finish college. You know, so it was kind of like. But what we had, and it's kind of strange, is my father had like twelve, sorry, eleven siblings, and so my. Oh. <laughs> my eldest aunt who was about like 25 years older was a phd and so she had gone to columbia i guess in like the 50s or something and got like a teacher's degree so you know she spoke with like a british accent and all this kind of stuff because in jamaica and those places like you try to replicate you know the oppressors the western london uh, accent right? sorry the Western London accent. Oh, well, she did like the fancy one. So they it was yeah. all about kind of like reading and writing properly. And we would go back to Jamaica every year. And I think it was kind of like my family, like my father would always say that he was the youngest son. So he was meant to stay on the farm and take care of his parents. Uh, but like, for whatever reason, my aunt, she kind of was the eldest one, 25 years his elder. And she made sure that all of the siblings that followed her kind of um, got a good education. So I think that that was the one, she was the one that kind of, I was inspired by it because it was like, I could see that she was able to get a PhD, you know, and, and go to Columbia in the fifties. And it must've been really, really difficult. And then, you know, like I saw my mother once we got there as well, kind of not happy to just stay in the role that she had been 
given or whatever. It's kind of like she kind of kept going back to school and studying. And so a lot of my youth was my mother kind of in college. Um, and like I said, she eventually ended up graduating, I think, for her master's with my sister at the same time. And so that's amazing. Yeah. So we were always like being pushed. But it wasn't that they necessarily. So, kind so of that started. nurture piece, you got it in your family is, is you had like some role models uh, within your family. And I think that's really important when we talk to tech mm -hmm. entrepreneurs when, you know, you and I have been around the world a few times uh, talking to a lot of tech entrepreneurs. And one of the biggest things that I've noticed, I think you might agree, um, is that they need the tech, they need encouragement. They need to see role models that look like them uh, that are succeeding. Right. So in Silicon Valley, it's really easy for people to be bold and, and say, hey, I can do this because they see people like them from their background, et cetera, that are succeeding. But even like when I go to Ukraine uh, or other parts of the world, especially, uh, they don't have those role models. There's no millionaire secretaries from IPOs or what have you, or, or even entrepreneurs that are able to take an idea all the way to a public company. Um, I think if we kind of take that idea towards, uh, towards certain communities, minorities, et cetera, I think same thing happens. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think it happens on both sides. I think from the side of the investors, they call it pattern recognition, you know, this idea that I know what success looks like. And, you know, what I've kind of come to realize is that people just generally, um, when they're in a small room, like most venture capitalists are, you know, with people that they probably went to school with, or if they didn't go to school with, they could have gone to school with, um, and that they tend to be kind of like white men from the same backgrounds. When they're in those kind of intimate circles, any sort of discomfort can be enough to disqualify someone. As I've gotten older, I've started to realize that the key to life is to make sure that when those doors are closed, there's someone advocating on your behalf. Because if the doors are closed and no one's actually fighting for you, you're not going to get that plum roll, you know, whether it's in a corporate or in a venture capital environment. So I do think that it's not only about kind of the representational aspect of making sure that there are people um, like that look like you, but people that look like you in decision-making um, position. Because I think that there was something that came out like a couple of weeks ago in the Washington Post saying that of the top 102 VC firms in the US, there were only seven decision-makers that were black. So then the question is, you know, who do you think is gonna end up getting the funding? I mean, everybody is going to be able to relate to someone who looks like them and people who don't look like them, for whatever reason, get signified as additional risk. And not everyone wants to take an additional risk. Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, we'll come back to all of this, but I wanted to kind of make sure we, we follow the, uh, the, the story arc here, the story arc of Gary. Um, so you got to Yale, uh, you were a pioneer there. Uh, you, you were the first black uh, Yale Law, Law Journal what is it called? The the law uh, the law review. Yeah, right. yeah, law journals is that that's it. Harvard Law Review. Yeah, law. Harvard Law Review. I, I always get them mixed up, but uh, Yale is number one. We know that. So exactly. Uh, so, so so how did you how did that come together? You know, I think it was in most of my situations, like because I'm not a complete asshole, or at least I try not to be. There's usually like somebody that says, "Hey, he seems like a nice guy. Let me help him out." And in law school, that was a woman called Eleanor Brown, um, Jamaican, Rhodes Scholar, you know, and so she was like, you know, with a thick Jamaican accent, she's like, Gary, this is bullshit. You have to be on the journal. So all of a sudden, before I knew it, I wasn't even sure I wanted to be on the law journal. But then she's like, she's like, don't worry, I'm going to make sure that you kind of, you know, and, and that's, that's goes back to what we just said, right? Which is that there was somebody who knew how the game was played, who then said, I think that you're really good and you should you should put your name forward. And I was like, I'm not really sure about that. You know, like, let's see. And then she's like, don't worry, um, let, leave it to me. And so she took care of it. And then all of a sudden when they did the Crazy. election, 
I mean, I'm sure I must have played some role in it, but I was just like, I'm like the luckiest guy in the world. (laughs) I I usually think as long as you're nice to everybody, people are willing to try and help you out. So Eleanor, you know, she, she helped me out. She was like, she was a Rhodes Scholar. She knew how the game was played. She just kind of made sure that she had conversations and, and then told me how to position myself. And so probably a lot of the written and unwritten rules of how that whole process worked, I learned from her. And then all of a sudden, before I knew it, I was executive editor of the Yale Law Journal. When, you know, I think in my year, I was the only student or maybe one of two or three, I can't remember, black students to even get on Law Journal. And I'm not gonna brag, but I got on twice because I wrote an article so I can get on that way. And then I also passed a test. So it was kind of like, yeah, it was kind of like I got onto Law Journal, but then that didn't mean that I knew anything about like what it actually meant. I just knew it was like some brass ring that I was supposed to possess. And then someone else had to say, actually, this is what you're supposed to do with it. Eleanor also told me like, you're supposed to go for clerkships. And I was like, um, I'm not sure I want to do that. Um, well, this is how you do it. And these are the professors, th- these are the professors and these are the, so all of a sudden before I knew it, I was like following in Eleanor's footsteps. Like, okay, guess I have to go for a clerkship as well. And then all of a sudden, I was clerking for the DC, um, the, the chief judge of the DC Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, so it was like a lot of times it's like someone who in that case came before me, who knew the rules, took the time to tell me what the rules are, took the time to fight on my behalf, even when I didn't want to fight on my own behalf. Um, and then all of a sudden I was like, in a lot of cases, a beneficiary of other people's kindness. So this is like even beyond mentorship, right? Because it, it's kind of a reluctant mentorship where you didn't even know you were getting mentored. It's somebody just yeah. pulling you and making sure that uh, to groom you into this into this thing in you that you may not even fully see in yourself and then they kind of like say okay well i wonder why he's being so relaxed about this like let me just help him out to realize his potential and you're like oh cool thank you um so that's why i always feel like as long as i'm nice to people someone will say oh hey he's not that big of an asshole like let me try and help him out and then usually it kind of works out you know so it's kind of like that's why i believe just be nice to people Number one piece of advice from Gary: Don't be an asshole, and and all yeah. these opportunities yeah. await you. <laughs> in elite in elite university. So, um, so you went to college with Stacey Abrams. So let's talk about uh, Stacey a little bit. To to law school or or is it college? To law school. Law school. Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, you've been a big supporter. I think uh, mm-hmm. I first uh, really kind of discovered Stacey through your posts. And um, and you've been a little bit active with her, and she's on the nest as well, yeah. which we'll come back to as well. So uh, tell tell me a little bit about uh, what was it like uh, to to go to school with Stacy, and and why you're such a believer, and and what you think uh, the world holds. Let, let's kind of do a time capsule and come back yeah. to this in a few years and see if you're all right. So Stacy was kind of like the anti Gary in a lot of ways, and the anti Eleanor, like my friend who I just mentioned, in the sense that she got to Yale Law School and she was relatively quiet. So whereas kind of like you know, in the very first week, I think it must have been at least in my you know forty plus year old brain, um, it feels like it was the first week. You know, um, Professor Fiss, like you know, did Socratic method. I hadn't quite read all of the material, um, but like I, I just assumed that he wouldn't pick on me in class. Um, and it was kind of like how to get away with murder, where they're like, Mr. Stewart, so what do you think about this fact pattern, and what would you do here? And I think that I had done debate long enough that I could kind of just reason it through, even though I didn't necessarily know all of the facts. As long as he gave me enough of a tidbit, I could kind of figure it out, right? And so then he was like very impressive, and this was like when our in our first year, um, like you know, kind of when we we're having those like um, mandatory classes. And then at the end, Stacy came up to me and said, "You're really smart. We should be friends." 
So that was how Stacey and I became friends uh, because she thought I was smart because I answered the questions properly in one of these classes. Um, and then what happened is we just started hanging out and it was like, just like, you know, she was kind of very introspective. She is very introspective. And so she didn't really kind of like try to make a big name for herself at law school. So there were some people, you know, Cory Booker was in class with us and there were like a whole bunch of other people. Um, he was like a year or two ahead um, who you could tell that they were trying to be politicians, you know, that they were kind of like, actively working in local democratic politics in New Haven and Connecticut and blah, blah, blah. Plan from, from, and from those days, yeah. And, and they were always kind of like, um, what's one looking for? Not Teflon, but kind of, they never kind of show, showed who they really were. I'm not gonna, I'm not trying to be- They were politicians from day one, huh? They were politicians at law school. So you could see yeah. like, there was a, hey, how's it going? And smiling and happy and stuff like that. Stacy was a bit more real. Um, and we would just like hang out in her flat, like when we weren't, or sorry, apartment, when we weren't kind of like, you know, <laughs> when we were in uh, classes and we would do stuff like, she would teach me how to sing because she said I sang from the throat or something, no, from my nose and I had to get it down. So it'd just be like normal stuff. And then all of a sudden one day we were gonna do moot court together. And so we did moot court, like a kind of black moot court competition. And so we won that and yeah, we just became friends. And so we just hung out and she says that she came to my house and she met my parents. I can't remember that. We probably like one vacation when she didn't go back home, she might've came over, come over to my parents' house or whatever. So that was cool. Um, and it's like, I think that what I, took from it though, was that even though she was kind of like not trying to be what we called in law school, the gunner, people always knew that she was really smart. And then I always knew that she had like a plan because I think that one of these sessions where we were like singing or whatever the case may have been, like people, that's not what we did at law school all the time, but you know, sometimes, um, then- There's a little <laughs> law studying in between the singing sessions, right? I mean, yeah, I did something between studying. Um, then she kind of told me what her long-term plan was. Um, and so even though I think at that point, I must've been like maybe 23, 22, whatever it might've been. Um, and she might've been a year older than me, I think she is. She had a plan as to how she was eventually going to, you know, go all the way in politics. Um, and it, it was impressive because she had mapped it out. I mean, she's mentioned it in a few interviews. I don't know if it's on Excel or whatever it is, but like literally she had it mapped out since she was like in her twenties, um, what she wanted to do. and. Right how she was gonna get there. And so when she came to visit me in London, like must've been a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago, um, I was like, it's really amazing that like you had that plan and you kind of stuck with it because whereas other people went and got tempted by going to big law firms to make a lot of money or to, I don't know, do something else, Stacy always knew what she wanted to do. And it was always to go into politics and to try and go all the way to the top. Um, and so I think, cool. Well, let's let's see. Uh, I think uh, within the next few weeks, we'll find out if uh, if she got picked by Biden. Yeah, yeah. Maybe a little early. Maybe 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 this time around. Maybe in next cycle. Uh, but uh, very impressive uh, lady. Very very impressive. So, on the same token, on impressive ladies, um, I, I talked to you off camera a little bit before we hit record. Um, you know. Uh, with with everything going on right now, right, with the Black Lives um, Matters movement and and everybody kind of having this awakening, uh, now looking at the numbers, it's like the biggest civil unrest in in U.S. history, bigger than the civil liberties movement, uh, civil rights movement in the late '60s. Um, part of it, I think, is social media, and there's just a lot more activity and all of that. Uh, things just kind of move a lot faster these days. 
But uh, one of the things that, that was going around is that I noticed, and you know, I'll share my opinion and, and please share yours. Uh, there was a video of Candace Owens going around. And I think most people before this had no idea who she was. Admittedly, I had very little idea. I've heard of her before and I, I follow politics pretty closely. Heard of her a little bit. And then I see a lot of people posting this to just, to just kind of confirm, you know, people that are meaning well, but they're really confirming their bias. And they're like, oh, well, this, you know, what she was saying is that, you know, um, that Floyd was a bad guy and that's all these things and and just really kind of playing this whole line. Uh, but then I kind of started doing research and, and digging in a little bit, looking at her previous, uh, you know, onstage appearances with Killer Mike and T.I., this conference from earlier, I think it was either late 2019 or early 2020, uh, when we had conferences still. Um, and, um, and, and, she's and, and I did more homework on her and I realized that, you know, she was kind of really unsuccessful. And then she, 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 she found her little niche, which is uh, the, the black person that supports MAGA and Trump and all that bullshit. Um, and really kind of going against her people. And it reminded me, and I wrote about this to my audience uh, a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago now. Uh, it, it, it's kind of, uh, you know, same thing as like Jews in World War II in Eastern Europe. Some of them pretended not to be Jewish. They were kind of the Shandas and they're kind of trading their own people for their own interests. In that case, it was, you know, not to get shipped off to Auschwitz. Uh, but uh, in this case, I see it as kind of a similar betrayal. So, I mean, I'm really leading the witness here. Yeah, but, yeah, you didn't, uh, but <laughs> we went to the same place. Um, but, but tell me what you think. <laughs> she is a sellout. Um, you know, the thing is that when I was in college and law school, people always assumed that I would sell out because since I was like, you know, um, I did well, and there were like a lot of options to kind of go the black Republican route or whatever, because everyone knew that it would be profitable, right? Because they always want to have like one black person who contradicts everything that everyone else is saying um, to kind of prove that, you know, they're not racist, right? The token, the token. The token. Okay. You know, the Clarence Thomas, like, I mean, whatever. So, you know, the thing is, I remember at some point I'm like, damn, like this is gonna be really profitable. If you kind of just are willing to sell out everybody else for yourself, you become, what was it in Django Unchained? Like that um, Samuel Jackson character? Mm -hmm. There was one kind of like, he was like um, more slave master than the slave masters. You know what I mean? And it's profitable because you end up getting like all of, Massa loves you, right? Um, and Massa gives you the benefit. Maybe Massa don't beat you that much. Um, I see Candace Owen in that same light. I think that like, I someone sent me the video and I don't think I watched all of it, but I was like, logically it doesn't even make sense because she starts talking about like how we as a black community need to actually not um, make heroes out of people like George Floyd. And I'm like, okay, well maybe there's an interesting argument. I'm not sure that we're trying to make heroes out of him. We're just saying that the incident of police brutality and the way he died was particularly inhumane and that like this is something that's more endemic to the, the black community more generally regardless of whether or not you are a criminal or you're gary stewart right the reason that i identify with george floyd is not because i'm a criminal and i'm going around doing counterfeit 20 dollars bills or whatever the case may be it's because i, the, I think by the way they even proved that it wasn't given counterfeit you know even if it were regardless but, yeah but the point is that the cop can't tell the difference and right. the cop doesn't care you know and that same white lady the weekend or the week before uh, what's her name? I can't remember her name anymore. Good thing that we forgot it. The one in Central Park. Amy you know? Cooper. Amy, Amy Cooper. Cooper. Yeah. You know, 
All she sees is the black man and she knows that she's going to call the cops and she knows that she's going to be believed. It doesn't make a difference that he went to Harvard or that he was gay or that he likes watching birds or whatever. Um, he's a black man. So the point of it all is that like the first fallacy of the argument is that somehow you're only prosecuted or persecuted if you are a poor black man or if you are somehow engaged in even minor criminal activity. If that were the case, I think the black community would respond differently. The point is that that's not always the case. There's simply too many incidents of people, um, you know, there are incidents of people sleeping at Yale and having the cops called on them, you know, because people think that they didn't belong there. So I think that was the first thing. I'm just like, you're a freaking sellout because you know that that's not the case. And if your brother or whatever is walking down the street um, and the cop doesn't know him from Adam, like there's a likelihood or possibility at least um, that he's going to be kind of treated um, erroneously or egregiously. So that's the first thing. And then later on, she kind of goes to say that we shouldn't vilify it. But then she starts talking about like the incident of kind of black crime and how white people should be, uh, you know, uh, afraid of black people. And I'm like, really, what are you trying to get at? So like, you're saying that we, you're justifying kind of white people saying that like, this is self-defense. Um, so I kind of thought at the end of the day, what she wanted is what she got tens or hundreds of millions of views. I don't know what it got at the end of the day so that she will get a lot of money as being the person to kind of speak truth about blackness. Um, I'm not in any way identified with people who are criminals. I don't hang out with criminals. I don't right. want to be a criminal. Um, doesn't mean I can't understand that like a black man getting shot, um, whether he's jogging in, um, in Georgia or whatever he was doing in the George Floyd case, like that happens way too often for us to think that these are about the individuals involved as opposed to the color of the person's skin and what that then signifies to the people who are pulling the guns on them. And I think that that's the reason yeah. why she's disgusting. Well, I mean, there's also this this concept, of, you know, and I've noticed it more and more as I'm thinking about it uh, out there is kind of the difference between anecdotal thinking and statistical thinking. And you have people making these kind of fallacious arguments trying to defend their bias with kind of anecdotes, right? Mm -hmm. And it starts at the top with uh, Captain Orange Underpants. Um, that that brings up these, you know, and, and this is like an old politician trick is they'll they'll go and pick on like you know they'll made up like Susie or whatever Bobby and they'll tell the story because people can identify it as a it's a um, it's an effective vehicle, right, to get a point across. But it's an anecdote and it has nothing to do with statistics. Same thing we're seeing now with COVID. And uh, people going out and say, oh well, I don't know anybody that was sick with it. That means that everything's okay. When statistically, you know, you have, you know, tens of millions of people sick and, and hundreds of thousands dead, but they refuse to get it through their head. It's, it's, it's pretty crazy. There's one thing I'll say about it, though, because, I mean, I'm not always sure that I'm supposed to say this, but I, I do think that we do need to address the fact of why white people in particular might be afraid of black people. You know what I mean? Because the thing is, like, when I read a lot of this stuff about, like, um, you know, all of these incidents, and then you read the comment section, you realize, um, whether it's in the U.S. or in the U.K., a lot of white people are like, well, you know, we should be justified in feeling afraid of black people. I actually feel like it's a conversation that we should probably just have openly, you know, and kind of discuss about, well, okay, it is true that statistically speaking, there is a kind of Oprah representation, but even Donald Trump is talking about the criminalization of black people and how that might have destroyed communities. The difference between um, the way that the country dealt with the opioid crisis versus the way that the country dealt with the crack crisis. If you had criminalized every person who overdosed, not overdosed, but kind of like took opioids or whatever, that might have led to kind of a destruction of communities that might then lead to kind of increased criminality. So I don't have any problem with having the kind of intellectual conversation, but let's have the intellectual conversation. I don't, maybe because I did debate for so long, I'm like, I'm okay to take the argument that you 
think is your winning argument that black people commit more crimes and then figure out, okay, so what should that mean from a public policy point of view? Or does that justify a cop shooting a, a black person? Probably not, but let's get to yeah. the argument, figure it out. What I don't like about what she did is that she's trying to profit from it personally at the cost of the entire community to what she wants. Right. Yeah. I mean, but there, there is a small group to be fair. There's a small group, I'd say a smaller percentage of black people that consider self-conservative and do kind of go towards that direction. I mean, I have my opinions. I, what am I? I'm just an Eastern European white guy. Um, uh, to, you know, so my opinion only goes so far in this topic, but, uh, I, I think it's also a marketing issue, right? It's like, uh, you know, back after, uh, after civil war, uh, black people were branded as kind of this criminal element. There was like a big effort for decades that went into creating this image of criminality and kind of this law enforcement. And even if you look back at the history of, you know, the police force in the U S it actually came from. Uh, chasing down uh, slaves that ran away, right? That was like the original police force in America. It's, it's pretty crazy, like how this loop gets us to today. And, it, and it's really sad that people kind of make these snap decisions, these like all lives matter bullshit people that don't really understand why all this is happening and how we got here and kind of the statistical reasoning behind, like, let's say, yes, in, in uh, lower income communities, criminality is higher but that is because people don't really have a choice or don't have as many choices. They're, 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 they don't have the right support, the right mentorship to set them in the right direction. Um, and they make bad choices and it kind of leads to, you know, the statistics we see. It doesn't, yeah, you know, it, it's not like a nature thing. It's not like a DNA no. level thing at all. It's crazy. Or people commit more crimes, I would assume, in the majority of countries in the world. You know, like right. you said, I'm, sh- I'm sure if we went to Ukraine and we looked at kind of like uh, statistics of criminality, I don't know, I could be making this up. I'm assuming that there would be some sort of link between um, poverty and and criminality. Um, and I'm not necessarily saying that, you know, so so it's it's not like a racial issue, but then that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, let's go to the underlying causes and have that discussion. Let's not just do the kind of facile, you know, sellout thing and then basically try and say it's because black people are criminals yeah so so let's let's uh zoom out for a second i mean you spend most of your professional career now in europe yeah and um you know let's talk a little bit about difference and we can kind of tie in from this like what are you seeing you know you you very well know the treatment of black people in america in professional world do you see differences in europe in how that works yeah, no, I did say, like, I would say what I think. So let's go with that. I think that the main difference is um, in the U.S., um, Black people are more persecuted, but they're also more um, willing to agitate, more willing to fight. Um, I think that, like, because that's the only way that we've got ever gotten anything. You know what I mean? So we don't really have any um, choice. And at the same time, like, you know, I was saying to someone today, you know, when you were coming over on that ship, uh, no one cared if you came from Nigeria or Cote d'Ivoire or whatever. Um, if the ship was too heavy, they threw you overboard and you would just die or whatever and be fed to the sharks. Um, and that wasn't kind of like an ethnic thing. So once you got to like the U.S., maybe people spoke different languages, but eventually they realized that they were just kind of one and create like these strange languages that were kind of mixes of their original languages and what they heard and understood to be English. Um, I think in, in Europe, it's different, which is that like people never had that sense of like common identity or common struggle. So they tend to be, in some senses, less less discriminated against overtly. They've never had that kind of, I think, history of overt discrimination, but it's kind of more embedded in the system to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And, and 
they just seem to accept it. So like a lot of like the Brits that I see here, the black Brits, I don't really see them agitating for social change to the same extent that you would see in the US. I think that they kind of somehow think in a lot of cases, that's a US problem. Even though the other day a study came out and I think it was a guardian saying that 50% of all blacks in Britain are um, in poverty, right? I don't think it's, I don't know what the numbers are in the US but I can't imagine it's much worse than that. So the point is that even though they're having very similar life situations, like somehow or another, people have been able to kind of explain that away. And you haven't had that same sense of like movement or social justice until very recently, from what I can see in the UK, of people saying, let's fight this. Like, this is actually crazy. Yeah. And we need to band together, not as Ghanaians or Nigerians or Jamaicans, but as Black people. It's like here you still really get the sense of like, uh, because their history is more kind of uh, colonial. So they mm -hmm. kind of still really identify with the kind of colonial or, or the kind of country that they were born in. So I'm Nigerian and British. Um, and, and I think that kind of dissipates a little bit this notion of actually you're black and you should be fighting a common cause. So that, that and then I think what that means then is that like there's not actually that much that changes for black people in Britain or in these other countries. And then the other thing is the numerical one that in the UK blacks are only about three percent of the population. I don't know what it would be in France, but you can kind of forget about them if you want to, if you're mm -hmm. a politician. Whereas increasingly, the only reason why anyone is thinking seriously about a black female vice president is because black women are the base of the Democratic Party and blacks are sizable enough uh, voting bloc that people say, okay, well, we have to kind of take them seriously. You know, it, it's not necessarily the case that you have to take black populations seriously in most of Europe because they're not um, relevant from a kind of voting bloc point of view. And they haven't even been, with the small numbers that they do have, united. Yeah, I think in France, the uh, black population is probably higher than UK, but it's probably um, it's it's post-colonial, right? It's more like more recent, more recent generation immigrants that come from probably North Africa, primarily North and West Africa, I would guess. And they've been taught, they've been taught that they shouldn't they should be French first and African second. So like they just kind of all. Yeah. I mean, kind of the same thing people say in in U.S. You know, we're all Americans first, but we have twelve percent of the population that's black that is kind of reluctant, reluctant. Uh, you know, <laughs> originally not by choice. Uh, but it's interesting that uh, there's a big difference. Yeah, I see it. You know, that, that's an interesting angle that in America, you know, people say that black people are not a monolith, but in reality, black people are treated as like one group. Let's say more or less. Whereas uh, even like Caribbean versus African versus South American, it's kind of all seen, you know, all these people are seen as one group. Whereas it's interesting in Europe, it's, it's more of like an identity, a national identity yeah. uh, for different regions and different countries. That's interesting. So, um, and then, you know, so do you see the same thing, like uh, kind of on the same vein, um, you know, we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, it's not exactly like overt racism in technology, uh, but there's definitely kind of exclusion or definitely not enough representation of minorities. Uh, although we have, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, it's heavily immigration uh, immigrant population. You have a lot of uh, Asians, Chinese, Indians, Eastern Europeans. You have a big mix. But, you know, I was surprised to see, you know, when I'm going to conferences, um, I see a representation. I see a lot of countries, a lot of regions that send representatives and they're actively trying to build bridges between let's say Europe and Silicon Valley or Southeast Asian Silicon Valley, in some cases, South America, um, but very little 
uh, connection with Africa. And it's like such a huge market. And I think it's going to be a leapfrog market. You know, in a decade, Africa is going to be a completely different opportunity. You know, if we just look pure business, you know, um, what are you seeing kind of, is there same, same, you know, would you say it's more same or more different in Europe in the tech scene? Yeah, no, the, the one thing you said about Africa that someone said to me, and I haven't verified it, so it could be complete BS, but, you know, whatever, throw it out there. He was saying that in South Africa or Africa, I can't remember which one, um, whites are 0.0006% of the population, but they receive more than 50% of the funding, even in Africa, right? So I'll just leave Every that. Whole continent, because I think uh, population South Africa is probably more than average white. Maybe, but you know, there's still kind of a minority there as well. But yeah. the point is that there's still, and, and I saw this when I was in South Africa, which is that, you know, you go around, especially like in Cape Town and maybe even in Johannesburg, um, the entrepreneurs that you meet are all white. And I remember mm -hmm. asking, like, isn't this a black country? Where are the black entrepreneurs? Um, and they just, they, they don't, you know, they, it goes back to what we were saying before, they just come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. You know, they have different sort of necessities. The startups that they're coming up with are very different. Um, and they don't necessarily have people who are championing, giving them opportunities. Um, but that was just one thing I thought. In terms of Europe, what I would say is that for me, being black was always like kind of super cool. Because the thing is like, for a lot of people, I think I was like the first black person that they ever spoke to. Not necessarily wow. in the UK. <laughs> Not so much in the UK, but definitely in places like Spain. You know, I I must have been kind of like the only. I mean, and who Spain people, Spanish people don't talk to black people. You know what I mean? Um, so it was kind of in a lot of cases you just saw like people discovering for the first time like what a black person was, right? Um, and they so would have you're saying some kind of like exotic novelty. Yeah, definitely. But you know, it kind of um, it wasn't all bad because then it just means that like you become memorable. Uh, so I remember I would go to conferences and people come up to me and they're like, "Hey, Gary. Hey, Gary. I'm like, who the who the hell are you? <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, kind of, of, that's kind of a superpower. <laughs> I was the only black person there for them to kind of even know. So I was like, "Oh, that's the black guy. That's Gary." You know. Um, so yeah, I would say that that kind of had that's the pro of it. I think the con of it is that like, you know. Yeah, I don't know that you always feel 100% included in in the situations, especially being a black gay guy. It's kind of like, I feel like a lot of the parties, and I hope this doesn't sound crazy, were about kind of nerdy white guys or Asians hooking up with the few women that were there. Um, like by the time you got to kind of the social element of it. And I didn't really fit into that whole scene. You know what I mean? Um, so I feel like there were definitely moments where it felt kind of like, okay, you're at the wrong party. Um, not that people ever said anything kind of overt, but you just kind of started to kind of notice the cues. Um, and I think that on top of it, I don't think that, you know, people ever actually thought about the fact that because you were black or even gay, like even for like a white gay guy, that um, that these are differences that matter to people or that it can lead to them feeling excluded. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that probably that needs to change, right? Because the thing is, I would go to so many conferences where we were talking about white women and diversity. And I'd be like, are we going to talk about other forms of diversity too? You know, like, I mean, you can choose one in my case. And it was like, people don't, they weren't interested in talking about that. They were only interested in talking about their, their daughters and their, you know, their wives. That's the way I look at kind of like the gender issue. I was reading this one study and it was talking about the daughter effect, which is that if a VC has a daughter, he's more likely to want to invest in female entrepreneurs or to have female partners or something like that. So they call it literally the daughter effect. No one has a black effect, you know it's, what I mean? It's a effect, right? All of a sudden, he he care he started caring about uh, 
uh, about um, uh, gay rights when you know his daughter was a dictator. Yeah. Dick Cheney. Dick Cheney. Yeah, yeah, his daughter is, is gay. And and all of a sudden he started caring about that, even though he's like the most conservative guy you can imagine. And and that's a difference, right? Like a lot of other groups, it's kind of like women, you know, have daddy who's in power, has a daughter. So even Trump promotes Ivanka more than anybody else. So daddy right. has like a daughter um, or a wife, but he, it's usually the daughter that's going to be the um, the one that he wants to actually use as a model for the future, not the wife. Um, some people now have gay people, which is why the gay rights movement was all about coming out of the closet so that people would realize that like gays aren't freaks and pedophiles. It's your son or your daughter. You right. know what I mean? So then all of a sudden that changes the the thing. Oh my God. Like, you know, my, my cousin is gay. The one I grew up with. Oh, they can't be that bad. Cause I know, him, you know, but no one has a black person in the family that just suddenly comes out, you know? So it's right. kind of, I think that's why there's kind I was of. I going to ask you about this. This is, so this is, you, you are a minority within a minority, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is, and I, you know, your family is, is somewhat religious as well. And I think, in, in, you know, it's, it's very well known in the black community. Uh, there's no such thing as gay rights. And uh, it's, it's, you know, very, on average, more religious community than, 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 uh, than everybody else. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a big conflict there. Um, I mean, you have a great relationship with your family. Mm. I talk for hours on that, but I was more interested in kind of to touch on, you know, something more in the news right now, your partner is Russian born, right? And, um, and obviously that's a completely different world as far as gay rights. There's no gay rights. There's like, there's like this new movie about uh, Eurovision that came out on Netflix. Yeah. I there's this character. He's, uh, he's like the main, you know, one of the main characters, the big singer is Russian. And he's like, no, I'm not gay. There's no gay people in Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, so pretty entertaining, but in light of kind of what's happening there and, and you, you guys have gone together. I think you, you know, spent some time with this family there and you've been there more recently than I have kind of what, what's your reaction? Like, what was it like to be there? In this so we met at a gay club, um, one called central station. Um, and I went there and I was just like, Whoa, this is like a really, really gay club. You know what I mean? Uh, like there's some, like you go to London and it's not like super gay. It's kind of like um, British gay, but like in um, like in in it's like posh, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, well, you know, people are just kind of more reserved. I mean, they might be drunk, but they're not like, you know, like uh, I'm gonna call it like in Russia they were like slutty gay. Let's call it that. Um, and so it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of yeah, it was like just out there in your face. It wasn't like you know in some cultures, like I said, like where it's like a polo and some jeans. It was kind of like the normal, like the tank tops and the whatever, uh, Beyonce and, and uh, Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera kind of music. And I was like, I was not expecting this in Russia. And then we met and kind of, it was cool. But then I think three years later, like some kids got beat up outside of Central Station. And I think now it's closed, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, kind of tells a story, I think about like Russia for me, which is that on the one hand, obviously there are pockets of gay people and they're kind of the same as gay people anywhere. Um, you find them in San Francisco or whatever, except, you know, I think they're better looking in Russia. No, I'm only kidding. Um, but, uh, but the other side, though, is that three years later, those clubs are closed. And there were incidents where people were getting beaten up uh, because they were gay. And you'd have, like, these kind of thugs just waiting outside the gay clubs to beat them up. And I'm not sure that the police ever really investigated any of these issues. It's like back to the 60s in the U.S. And I think that that's the unfortunate thing. I mean, I think that... Yeah, I don't think that a gay person should want to hang out in Russia. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's it's uh, unfortunate. I mean, but it, it's the same. It's it's all in the same vein. It's like people are you know they're scared of or for some reason hate people that are different than them. It's just strange. Um, for for us, you know, people that have been around the world many many times and realize that everybody is the same, just looks a little bit different, has a slightly different accent, but we're all the same. It, it's kind of yeah. crazy. So um, speaking of the same and different. Um, you know, European startup culture will kind of try to loop, you know, wind it back a little bit uh, to tech. So uh, European startup culture is kind of, you know, it's growing on the one hand, it's, it's been, it's made leaps and bounds in the last 10 years. But one of the key elements of creating a, a great uh, startup ecosystem is this like idea of uh, being okay with failure, mm-hmm. meaning that, that um, a startup is seen much more of as an experiment than mm-hmm. a, a small version of a big business where there's no there's nothing wrong with an experiment failing right it's more of a scientific method um i know you you had some experiences back when you were a founder between the time you practiced law mm-hmm. uh, actually it'd be interesting to kind of wind back and and uh you know you were kind of an elite lawyer and then yeah. you said, forget all this i'm gonna quit i'm gonna I, I want misery i want pain i want to start a startup um so let's talk about a little bit about that journey and kind of you know what you've learned and and, and the difference in, in kind of business cultures too yeah, and I think at that point I was like delusional, right? Because the thing is that like usually whenever I tried something, I could like not expect to be good at it, but then eventually I could figure it out and it would turn out more or less okay. And for some reason I thought like entrepreneurship, which wasn't even really called entrepreneurship at that point, at least not that often in Europe, um, would work out the same way. It's like you just have to figure out the rules and then you can crack it. Um, all of this kind of uncertainty and stuff that would come out like you know, later with the lean startup movement and the way startups were defined, that wasn't really kind of the the version that I kind of experienced or, or well, it's, it is the version I experienced, but not what I expected. So I think that was the thing for me. And I think that what I learned in Spain, and this is kind of what I wrote about in that Forbes article, is that the legal culture shapes a lot kind of like the normative structure of a society. So if the law basically says, we think that big companies like Telefonica are using stock options in a bad way, therefore we're going to penalize stock options. And we're going to penalize anyone that says that he or she is creating a small business because we think that it's basically a form of tax evasion. I felt like a lot of the laws in Spain were all assuming that people who created businesses or people that kind of gave stock options or essentially trying to kind of create tax avoidance vehicles, then we're going to penalize them and we're going to make it really, really difficult. Um, The system wasn't created for startups. It was created to kind of prevent really wealthy people from, you know, from doing whatever they were doing. Um, And so that meant that when I created a startup, I didn't realize all of that. I thought like, oh, okay, well, I'm creating like a limited liability company or, you know, whatever the equivalent would be. there was no limited liability because the laws had been set up to make sure that if you started a company and for whatever reason it failed, you would have to pay the money back personally for as long as it took you to pay it back. And I didn't quite understand that when I set up a company in Spain, which means I probably um, would not set up a company in Spain ever again. Um, I know that they've been trying to change the laws, but I haven't kind of kept enough on top of it to know if they've actually changed it like substantially enough for that to be the case. And then people in Spain would tell me, oh no, you know, but there are ways to do it. Put the company in the name of your kids and stuff like that. And I'm like, that's a really great gift for them to have. If I ever have. (laughs) (laughs) UK limited and be done with it, right? (laughs) So, you know, I think that was the lesson there. I think the other main lesson that I've learned kind of more recently though, is, you know, when I finally went to Silicon Valley and I saw kind of the 
what it was like. And I was like, you know what? The real difference between Silicon Valley and Europe is that in Silicon Valley, you have people that created funds because they were successful entrepreneurs and they kind of felt like they could you know, game the system, that they knew how it worked and they could kind of actually make money by investing in these companies, especially by doing it with their friends. Um, I think that in Europe, you just have to remember that that's not the way the system or the ecosystems evolved. These are basically top-down ecosystems where you have um, governments, which are bureaucratic and inefficient, deciding that they're going to use some taxpayer money to um, entrust usually some of their friends who went to the same schools or to uh, work in the right places. So like usually banks or McKinsey, whatever the case may be, and that we're going to entrust them with public money to invest in startups. Um, I think what you missed there is a kind of fundamental element, which is like people who've been there and done that actually helping people who want to get there and do it, right? So I would say like now when I'm pitching the nest, because it's really kind of the fundamental belief behind the nest, if Serena Williams offered to teach me tennis, I'd be like, thank you so much. Roger Federer can do the second hour. That would be amazing. I would learn so much. If someone said, I watched Wimbledon um, and now I'm going to teach you tennis, came to offer me a, a free course, I would say, thank you very much. I can watch Wimbledon too. So I think that that's a difference. Like in Europe, there are too many people who watched Wimbledon and now think that they are masters of um, tennis, or in this case, entrepreneurship. And there are not enough people who've been there and done that and share their lessons. And I think that one of the other things I've seen in Europe as well is there's not kind of the same generosity. Um, and I know some Europeans are going to hate me for it, but whatever. There's not the same generosity, which is that like um, people saying, hey, you know, I don't know you, but I'm going to help you out. Like I remember when I went to Silicon Valley the first time and I met Steve Blank. And then I just like emailed him and I said, hey, this is my business plan. He like literally responded and said, okay, this is what I think. And then I asked him, would you be willing to do a video? And he's like, yeah, I'll do a video. Like that was it. Um, I think that like in Europe, it is a system that's based more on hierarchy. It's not quite this like meritocratic, democratic ideal. So I think that people don't tend to be as open to helping other people as I think that they should be. Yeah, yeah, like pitching at the palace. I thought that was always a little silly. Well, I loved it because it kind of opened a lot of doors for me. And, you know, I'm not going to get into that, especially with the news these days. <laughs> so um, I, I think we could talk for hours, uh, but uh, we want to, you know, we'll, we'll probably have, I'll want to do a follow up with you and, and we'll cover some additional topics. But let's talk a little bit about the Nest. So after over eight years at Wira, where you invested in a bunch of companies, built a great corporate accelerator, found some great successes. You decided to dive back in to the founder side yourself and you're giving back. So what led you to this idea? What motivated you to do that? It's a big risk. Yeah, no, there are a couple of things or a few things. One is that I think that after working at a large corporate for a lot of years, I realized that like um, going back to what I said, if I didn't have someone in the boardroom that was going to be defending me, um, my upward trajectory was going to be relatively limited, right? Uh, um, and particularly if I weren't working in the kind of headquarters, um, then that was going to be even more so the case, right? Like if I had stayed in Spain, that would have been one situation, but then moving to the UK, so you're working out of like a kind of, um, you know, branch office, so to speak, um, and you don't necessarily have access to the decision makers in the, in Spain anymore. Um, that, I think that was the biggest lesson for me, which is that like, that actually does matter. Right, um, and it's not just based on how good you are or whatever. You do need someone who's actively advocating on your behalf uh, to the final decision makers if you're going to progress your career in a corporate. Um, so that was the reality. And then the second thing is, I'd been there for eight years and I hadn't really kind of progressed ever beyond the same sort of general role or title. And I just knew that I'm too young to retire. So I could kind of like say, okay, well, I'm going to find fulfillment in the rest of my life. Um, 
But if I'm not finding it 100% at work, then I'm kind of wasting my time. Um, and so that was kind of what led me to, to, and then when people said to me, okay, so what would you actually want to focus on? Then I'm like, okay, so what's a problem that I actually believe is the big problem? And it's the one I just told you. I think that like too much money is being spent on accelerators and incubators because essentially venture capital was created based on exclusion. It's about finding unicorns. And usually the unicorns are white. So, um, you know, and the numbers kind of reflect that. It's a group of kind of white men usually sitting in a room trying to identify the one out of a thousand companies or whatever the number would be um, that's actually going to be amazing. And they're not usually going to believe that a black company, black-led company or a female-led company is going to be that one in a million company, whatever the statistical number should be, right? So I was kind of like, so then let's invert the model. If we invert the model, when that would mean is that like I'm really focusing on the 95% that they reject, right? Um, if you're if you're an accelerator, um, and if I believe that actually there is enough within that that group of talent, they just need to be kind of cultivated in some sense. You know, being taught the kind of written and unwritten rules the same way that Eleanor taught me the written and unwritten rules so that I could kind of get onto the law journal. Um, then maybe they can become like I did, get onto the law journal, whatever the case may be. Um, and I don't necessarily need them all to become unicorns. I just need them all to be more successful than they otherwise would have been. Um, and that's enough, right? Because my play is now a mass market play. It's not like a, an outlier play. So uh, that's kind of what the Nest is doing. And it really fundamentally says that, like why would you spend all of that time and money on cohorts of 10 companies if you could probably spend less money and actually help tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of companies, just by actually accessing what is really the secret sauce, which is people who have been there and done that, explaining how they did it so that I can get there too. Um, if you don't have that, doesn't make a difference how much you spend in fancy buildings in Europe or in Africa or the Middle East, it's never going to happen um, unless yeah. it's just purely serendipity. Yeah, I mean, there, there's regional plays where you can copy paste an e-commerce model or something that was that's not accessible or it's not available in that market yet that works mm -hmm. somewhere else. But certainly kind of the big the big global plays don't come about by accident. So what's the ultimate business model? Can, can you describe a little bit about how the Nest works? Yeah, no. So it's essentially just like Masterclass. We kind of um, focus on a subscription model. So users would pay, would pay us originally like about like initially $4.99 a month. Um, and then by the time we get to 2021, then we up that to $9.99 a month. So kind of at the beginning, there's a discounted fee, but then eventually it goes to $9.99. And for that, they access this like amazing library of entrepreneurs saying how they've done it, segmented into different types of entrepreneurs, um, not just by kind of race, gender, but also kind of just by a vertical and then also by stage so that you can then kind of create playlists about the people that you want to see and hear from telling you how they did it in things, in ways that are relevant to you. And so that's kind of like what I, my favorite part of the nest is the idea of creating playlists, which is that, you know, I don't always want to hear one person speak for an hour, even though we're doing this podcast for an hour. So I hope they stuck around, but sometimes I only want to hear snippets and I want those snippets to be kind of broken down and I can pick and choose and hear snippets from 10 people as opposed to hearing one person speak for the whole time. So uh, that's our, that's our business model. And then the other thing that we're doing is um, if you actually want to do a deeper dive into it, then it's not just like watching it passively. You can then say, okay, well, how does this apply to my particular case? And we can match you with an expert for a reasonable fee who can then kind of delve a little bit deeper into that topic in the context of your particular startup. Got so, it. So then actual kind of consulting model built into it. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, Gary, uh, it's it's wonderful to talk to you as always. I really enjoy it. Yeah. Better when we do it over dinner. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to get all the light on because I'm realizing the... Sun is finally gone. The sun in the has set on you in the background while we're talking. Um, 
So uh, for our audience here, so Gary Stewart, once again, is the CEO and co-founder of The Nest, an innovative new educational platform for entrepreneurs, currently in private beta. He joined us from London where the sun set while we were recording. Uh, Gary, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm excited uh, to record a lesson for The Nest later this week. Of course. Um, and uh, thank you, everybody, for checking out this episode of Accelerated. Hit the subscribe button, leave us a five-star rating, and tell your friends. If you'd like to connect, reach out to me at golem.net, and you can sign up for an exclusive beta access to The Nest on iOS or Android at nestforfounders.com. Once again, that's nestforfounders.com. That will be in show notes. Gary, thank you very much for being on the show.